listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Stonegate, thanks for joining us today. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3. And while you do that, let me just go back a couple of weeks. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we started a new initiative called Love Thy Neighbor. And that initiative is really just a way for us to ask everyone in our church family to begin to pray by name and by need for neighbors. And this is just one of the many ways Jesus loves to use the church to serve those around us. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in the Bible comes in the early chapters of the book of of Acts. Uh, The people within the church had all sorts of needs, and the church began to rally around those needs. Uh, They sold things to meet those needs. They gave generously to meet those needs. They did whatever it took to make sure every need was met in the church. And the Lord is providentially putting before us an opportunity to love our neighbors in a very Acts 2 and Acts 4 type of way. A few weeks ago, Rachel, who is a young single gal in our church, called and said, hey, I know that the government is planning to send me some cash. And I don't need that cash. And I would like to use that cash to help someone who does need it. And first off, I just want to look at Rachel, who's probably listening this morning, and say that that is the spirit of God working in you. That is thinking in a distinctively Christian type of way. So I just want to affirm that in you, Rachel. Uh, And church, I also want to just acknowledge that in the weeks and months to come, we are likely going to have a lot of needs in our church family. And so what Rachel modeled for all of us, I want to just make the ask. I want to invite everyone who calls our church family home to consider that same question, uh, that same thought of, of, could I give what has been given to me to help the needs of, of others? So if you got a stimulus check and you're in need, by all means, use that to meet the needs that you have right now. But if you got a stimulus check and you're not in need, I want to invite you to give all or part of that check straight to our benevolence fund. And everything that goes into that benevolence fund goes directly out to meet the needs of people around us. And church, we want to be the sort of church known as a people who just refuse to pass over needs. We want to be that kind of a church. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? This is one of the many ways we can make the grace of God visible. So so I want you just to consider giving all or part of that stimulus check to help meet the needs of those around us. And if you want to do that, Uh, you can go to our website, stonegate.church, and click on the Love Thy Neighbor tab, and it'll tell you everything you need to know uh, to make that happen. So today we are back in the letter of James, back in the letter of James. And I hope uh, by now that that two-word summary of the book of James is beginning to settle down into your heart. Uh, The entire letter, all five chapters, could really be summarized in these two words, faith works. Faith works. Uh, But there's a reason why James writes more than two words. Uh, There's a reason that he does that. Uh, Each section of this letter shows another way that faith works itself out in our life. Uh, Faith, as we read the the letter of James, uh, we see faith working in suffering. Uh, We see it working in temptation. We see it working against favoritism. 
We see it working in us by moving us to walk toward our neighbors with love. We see faith working in us to, to risk, to sacrifice, to impoverish ourselves for the good of others around us. And then as we turn the page to James chapter 3, we find another way that faith works. James shows us here in this chapter that faith works in our words, that faith works in our words. James has a lot to say about what we say. And some of that you see all the way back in in the first chapter of this letter. In James chapter one, verse 26, James says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is just making that simple point that faith works in our words. Faith, doesn't, faith that doesn't work in our words, James is saying it's something less than biblical faith. Now, in some ways, James is just repeating the words that he heard his big brother Jesus say. Back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 through 37, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What a, what a sober warning Jesus gives there. Uh, but he goes on to say in verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Uh, now, let me clarify that both James and Jesus believe and teach we are saved by faith alone. That's how we're saved, by faith alone. But both James and Jesus also know that the faith that saves is never alone. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves us, it never stays alone. Faith works. This is what James and Jesus are showing us. Faith works, and faith works in a particular way in James chapter 3. It works in our words. Uh, Just to clarify again, we, we aren't saved by our work. Our words. We are saved by the work of Jesus, but our words reveal. Do you ever wonder, uh, do I possess, like deep down where it matters the most, do I, do I possess the faith that I profess? Do I, do I actually possess it? James and Jesus are both saying, your words, my words, are a reliable test. They show us what's, what's down in us. If faith isn't working in our words, James is showing us here in, in James chapter one, then our faith is worthless. It's something less than biblical faith. Now with this in view, now we're coming into chapter three. And one commentator said this about chapter three, uh, James chapter three, verses one through 12. He, he says, this passage contains the single most concentrated the single most sustained discussion in the New Testament on the use of the tongue, on words. So church, let's let these words do its right work in us today. So James chapter three, Uh, let's start in verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. I love the Bible's honesty. This, This is James, Pastor James, pillar of the church in Jerusalem, James. It's it's that James just embracing his weakness for we all stumble in many ways. We all sin, James is saying. We all stumble in in many ways. Do do you know that about yourself? Uh, One of the ironic things about the Christian life is that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see the many ways you stumble and sin. 
This is one of the, the, the defining marks of, of growing and, and moving toward Jesus. And James here is inviting us to search our hearts, uh, to, to take a good long look at our, at our hearts to see where sin is, where, where those stumblings are. And I love that he put this phrase in this chapter because it clarifies something that we all need to hear James say. It, it clarifies that, yes, faith does work itself out in our life in, in many different ways, but faith makes progress, not perfection. It makes progress, not perfection. So yes, faith works, but it doesn't work by making you a perfect person or me a perfect person. It doesn't work that way. Faith makes progress. It allows us to look back over our lives and to see that slowly and gradually, we are becoming more like our big brother, Jesus. But then James goes on. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Now, you need to make sure you underline that word perfect. We've got to make sure we're seeing that word clearly. Just underline that word perfect. And out beside that word uh, perfect, right out in the margin, mature. That, that word perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means whole. It means mature. I think it's the best way to think about it. It means that we are mature. Now, how would you measure Christian maturity? Just imagine someone asking you that. How would you measure Christian maturity? Well, here's one way that James measures Christian maturity. He, he, he says that mastery of the tongue is one mark of Christian maturity. Mastery of the tongue. Now, that's surprising. If you, would, if you were to slide a piece of paper in front of me and say, list the top three, four, five ways that we could measure Christian maturity, I'm just not sure that words, our tongue, would make the list. And this is one of the reasons James is writing James chapter 3. He knows we don't assign the proper weight to words. James knows that. So he's, he's writing to tell us two massively important things about our words. Two massively important things. James is going to tell us here in this passage that words are powerful and words are a problem. Words are powerful and a problem. So let's take the first one. Words are powerful. Now, James is like the, the Yoda of word pictures. I mean, they just flow out of him. And in this passage, he stacks picture upon picture just incredible illustration, one after another, to show us the power of words. And in this first set of pictures, James shows us that words are powerful because words direct. Words are powerful because words direct. Uh, look at verses three and four. James says, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So, so think about the picture. He's saying, picture a horse. And it's just a simple but profound picture. He says, picture a horse. A horse is huge. It's a powerful creature. Yet it's controlled by this very small bit that, that fits in its mouth. Huge, big, massive creature controlled by such a very small thing. Now, do you see the picture that James is, is trying to paint for us? Uh, James is trying to, to paint that picture of something very small, a very small part that has big power. Small parts, big power. That, that's the picture. Then look at verse four. Look at the ships, James says. 
So now we're not on horses, now, now we're to ships. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So think about ships. Ships are amazing as well. Think about big, massive boats. These huge vessels are steered by, directed by a very small part, a rudder, a relatively small part of the boat. Now, do you see the picture? James is saying again, a very small part has big power. A small part has big power. Now you get to the point in verse 5. James says, here's why I'm telling you these pictures or giving these pictures to you. James says in verse five, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now think about the imagery of what James is saying here, because James is taking us with this imagery deeper into the power of words. Right? With these pictures, he's saying something else about words. Now, James has already said that mastery of the tongue is one mark of Christian maturity. So he's already told us that. But with these images and pictures, he's saying something else. He's taking us a step deeper in. He's saying with these pictures that mastery of the tongue is also a means of Christian maturity. Not just a mark of Christian maturity, but a means of, of Christian maturity. So he says, think about a bit or a rudder. He's saying that, that your tongue is like that. That that small muscle in your mouth is steering and directing your life. It's pointing your life either toward uh, Jesus and maturity in Jesus or away from it. Your tongue has the power to do that. Now, that's surprising to me because when I think about words, I most often think about words as if really what they do is provide commentary. Uh, they, 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 they commentate on what's happened. So an event happens and now we're using words to describe the event that happened. Uh, but the Bible doesn't see words primarily as, as commentary. The Bible sees words primarily as uh, creating. They're doing things, they're directing, directing your life. J James says it like this in verse six, that words steer, direct our life. They set the course of our life, James says. Welcome to the power and wonder of words. They're amazingly powerful. They're directing and steering and, and moving our life in a direction. Let me just give you an illustration of that. The Bible says when we are cursed, everything in us is gonna to wanna to curse back, right? When we're punched, we wanna punch back. But the Bible says rather than, than offering curses in response to curses, the Bible says, no, bless those who curse you. Now, why does the Bible say that? Well, one reason the Bible says to bless the person who curses you is because the Bible knows that when you bless that person, that's going to change you. That, that those words coming out of your mouth, speaking blessing to that person are going to point your life and direct your life and steer your life toward maturity in Jesus. Words are powerful because words direct. They're like a rudder, like a bit in our mouth that can point us toward Jesus, that can, that can move our life toward more maturity in Jesus. But words are also powerful because words are dangerous. Because words are dangerous. And you get this in verses five through six. Look at what James goes on to say. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
and the, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Now, that is amazing imagery to describe the destructive power of the tongue. Uh, Last year, it was last summer, the ranch fire began in California. It was the largest wildfire in California history. It burned over 400,000 acres. It burned over 280 structures, multiple deaths. It, It was a massive fire. And how did that fire start? Here was the official report. After a meticulous and thorough investigation, Cal Fire has determined, this is the report of how it started, Cal Fire has determined that the ranch fire was caused by a spark that came from a hammer driving a metal stake into the ground. That is, that is unbelievable. That, that one spark contains the power to burn up over 400,000 acres, destroying everything in its path. And James is saying, that's what words are like. Words contain that sort of destructive power. Now, here's what's tricky about words. Um, Words are tricky. It's hard to see them as that powerful because they're so commonplace. They, they, they just feel so ordinary to us. The average man speaks about 15,000 words a day. The average woman speaks about 25,000 words a day. Now, there are a few sermons that just are right there in that. I'm going to pass right over that. But the point is words are common. They're ordinary. They, they fill our everyday life. And they seem so just commonplace in life. But that's the exact reason why they are so powerful. Think about your life. What else do you do 15,000 times a day, 20,000 times a day, 25,000 times a day? Words are powerful because they permeate every little moment of our lives. That's the reason words are so powerful. Proverbs talks about the power of words like this. In Proverbs 18, verse 21, uh, the Proverbs say, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, that's, th- that is introducing us to the amazing power packed into words. Uh, when words are, are working rightly, they are like a fountain of life overflowing and blessing all of those who hear them. But when words are working wrongly, they are like a fountain of death overflowing and and bruising and breaking all of those who hear them. Words can bring death. They can actually bring death. I read this story years ago about a woman in Los Angeles who took her own life. And all she wrote in her suicide note was this. They said. They said. Words are weighty. Words have a long shelf life. Words spoken have no delete button. What what took years to build, one wrong word can absolutely destroy. And there are a million ways that words can can come out wrong and and work wrongly in our life. Uh, The Westminster Catechism, when it's describing and explaining the ninth commandment, which is really a commandment about words. When it's explaining that, it shows us many of the ways that words can work wrongly. And listen to these. It says, uh, words work wrongly like this, presenting false evidence, 
calling wrong right, calling right wrong, forgery, concealing the truth, remaining silent when you should speak the truth, speaking the right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way, twisting truth to a wrong meaning, lying, slandering, exaggerating, rash, harsh judgments, flattering, hiding or excusing sin when confronted, unnecessary harping on the weaknesses of others, gossip, listening to gossip, and not keeping a promise. Those are just some of the ways that words can work wrongly. And Proverbs, in another chapter, shows us that when words are working wrongly, the Proverbs say it's like a sword thrust. Words spoken or written wrongly stab and pierce and cut and ruin. Words can bring death, but, but words can also bring life. They can also bring blessing. And church, this is what words are for, to bless and encourage and serve those around us. When Paul is talking about the purpose of words, this is the way he says it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's just the whole category of wrong words that overflow in our life to bruise and break people around us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. That's the purpose of words. Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Words carry weight. And Paul is showing us here that that God intends our words to carry redemptive weight, to build up, to fit the occasion, to impart grace. So James, in a lot of ways, is just inviting us to to take a look back in our life and listen to our words. Are our words imparting life? Are they a fountain of life overflowing to others, imparting life and blessing? Or are our words like a fountain of death, overflowing in our life, poisoning and tainting and bruising others? And let me just apply this in a few particular ways. Every friendship needs words that are redemptive in them. Every friendship. If you're married, if you're single, every person needs friendships that that words are spoken, redemptive words are spoken in those friendships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote this. He said, every Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And he goes on to explain why. He says, the Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of our brothers. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's heart is sure. Right? You've been there. You've had those moments where you you know what you should believe, but you just can't, you just can't get yourself to believe it. But then a a brother, a friend, a sister sits down beside you and they start speaking into your life. And they're saying the exact things you know that you should be believing. You know you want to believe them. You just can't believe them. But as they say them, you start actually believing those things. Welcome to the power of words in friendships. Redemption, redemptive words in a friendship just flavor and season that friendship with grace. I remember I was thinking about this this morning. I remember a few years ago, Laura and I were fostering and we uh, fostered a little baby boy 
And after a few months, he left our house and we were just so heartbroken. And a friend knocked on the door and he looked at me and said, I don't, I don't even know what to say. But I want to tell you that God sees and God knows and I want to pray for you. That's how precious words can be in a friendship. That Every friendship needs words like that. Marriages need words like that. Words are weighty in marriages. Sam Crabtree wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. And I would just commend that book to you. It's a short book. It's very readable. And I think it would really bless you. But, but Sam, he said, after walking with couples for 30 years, he said, I've never seen a marriage fall apart. I've never seen a marriage fail or end up in divorce who practiced affirmation. If you're married, God has given you a unique voice in the life of your spouse. To to speak words of life, to encourage, to build up. God has given you a unique voice. And I just want to plead with you to use that voice wisely. to, To use that voice to bless your marriage. Your kids, if you're a parent, your kids need your words. desperately need your words. And I want to take a moment just to to talk to dads in particular. This applies to moms as well, but I I want to talk in particular to dads for a moment. If you're a dad, if you're a father, your words or the lack of your words will set the direction of your kid's life. That is how powerful your words or your lack of words are. One of my life goals is to be the most affirming voice in the life of my kids. It's one of my life goals. I I, want to do that. I want to do everything I can to be the most affirming voice in their life. Before they ever hear a well done, my good and faithful servant from their heavenly father, I want them to have heard that repeatedly from me. I want to just set the context and frame how they're going to hear that from God one day. And and dads, God has designed the world to work this way. There is no replacing your voice in the life of your kids. There's no replacing it. And so I just want to plead with you, if you're a dad, use your voice wisely. Look at your kids, look into the heart of your kids and speak into their hearts. That is, that is such a unique privilege God has given you as a dad for the sake of your kids. Let faith work in your words. This is the power of words. And James wants us to know that words are powerful. Death and life hang in the balance of words. They are powerful. They are directing our lives. But he also wants us to know that words are a problem. Words are a problem. Look at verse seven. James says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Welcome to the problem of words. It's amazing. James is saying here that humans have tamed all kinds of wild animals. And I'm trying to not make a reference about the Tiger King right now. Uh, so James has said, we, we've tamed them all. Tigers, lions, we've tamed them all, but, but not the tongue. He, he's saying, but left to ourselves, our mouths will master us. And if you want to know who's the master, you or your mouth, uh, take this one-week challenge. Jack Miller, he was a pastor in Philadelphia. He, he used to challenge people to do this. Take this one-week challenge. Uh, do these six things this week. 
This week, commit to these six. Number one, do not complain or grumble. Number two, do not boast about anything except Jesus. For the next seven days, nothing, don't boast about anything except Jesus. Number three, do not gossip or repeat bad information about someone else. Number four, do not run anyone down even a little bit. Like not even a hint of running anyone down. Number five, do not defend or excuse yourself no matter what. Just try one week of not defending or excusing, he says. Number six, do always. So so do this all the time. Do always affirm other people. Try that for seven days and see if you don't start believing what James is writing here. What James goes on to write, he goes on to say, it, talking about our tongue, our words, it is a restless evil. That's the imagery of like a caged animal that's constantly looking for a way out. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image of his likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. James is holding up a mirror before us and he's pointing us to the problem. He's saying, look back in your life and listen long to your words and look at all the inconsistencies that you see and hear in your words. Um, Inconsistencies like this. Um, God, I I love you, God. Uh, But Joe, I hate that guy. Uh, God, I love you. Uh, But hey, did you hear what Sarah did last week? God, you are amazing. And then we rip someone to shred on Facebook, just showing the world our hypocrisy. James is saying here in verse 10, my brothers, he says, these things ought not to be so. He's saying, no, brothers and sister, no, these shouldn't be so. Your your words matter. He goes on in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now think about what James is saying here. In these pictures, James is clarifying our problem isn't with sentences. Our problem is with the source of our sentences. That's where our problem lies, all the way down at the source. He's clarifying here for us that word problems are really just heart problems. The problem with our words goes all the way down into our hearts. Now, James, in a lot of ways, is just borrowing again from Jesus. In Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says this, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaks. It's funny to watch how people try to recover after they said something they know they shouldn't have said. Most often it goes something like this. Oh, goodness, would you please forgive me? I I really didn't mean to say that. Now, that way of recovering is really not very biblical. A more biblical way to, to recover would be to say something like this. Oh, gosh, would you please forgive me for saying exactly what I meant? That's a more biblical way of expressing our problem, right? Because James and Jesus are both saying that what comes out of our mouths comes from our hearts. What comes out comes from. Or as Sinclair Ferguson, one pastor, he, he says it this way. Our words carry the breath of our souls. Our words carry the breath of our souls. 
And our words reveal a problem that you have, that I have, that we all have. The breath of our heart smells bad. It just doesn't smell good. That's James's diagnosis of the problem. He's saying that the source, not our sentences, but the source, all the way down in our heart, the source is what needs help. Now, I want to finish, I want to close by applying this in two ways. One is going to be directly from the book of James, and the other I want to apply by taking kind of a broad sweep of Scripture. So let me finish by by applying this in two ways. Here's the first one directly from the book of James. I want to encourage you to consider fresh resolutions regarding your tongue, regarding your words, fresh resolutions. Faith works in our words. And I think it's good and right for us to make fresh resolutions about how we would like to see faith working in our words. And what I love about the letter of James is James shows us um, many ways that faith should be working in our words. And I want to give you this homework. I want This week, here's your homework. I want you to read through the letter of James, all five chapters, and I want you to compile a list of things that James says about our words, what, what we say. And I want you to make 10 resolutions from the letter of James, and you could make many more. I, I heard one pastor do 20 of them one time from the letter of James. You could make many more, but just take the letter of James, read through it, and make 10 resolutions that you would like to see your words now look Look like. And let me just uh, to kind of get you started. Let me give you let me give you seven resolutions from this letter. Resolution number one. This is in light of James chapter one, verse five. Resolve to ask daily for word wisdom. Uh, to ask God daily to fill your words with wisdom so that your words would be a fountain of life overflowing and blessing all of those around you. This might be another one. Uh, this comes from James chapter 1, verse 19. Resolve to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Gosh, wouldn't our world be an amazing place if we all practiced that? Uh, here's a third one from James chapter 4, verse 1. Resolve to resist quarrelsome words in order to crucify a quarrelsome heart. Resolved, out of James chapter four, verse one, resolve to resist quarrelsome words in order to crucify a quarrelsome heart. Proverbs 15 is right. A soft answer really does turn away wrath. What if if we practiced that? Here's another out of James chapter four, verse 11. Resolved to never speak evil of one another. What if we just allowed faith to begin to work itself out in our words like that? Can you imagine a church like that? Wouldn't you want to be a part of a church who who never spoke evil of one another? Here's a fifth one out of James chapter 5, verse 9. Resolved to never grumble. To never grumble. Grumbling is so innate in us that we do it without even realizing it. And what if, what if we resolve to never grumble, for grumbling to turn into gratitude in our life? Here's a sixth. In light of James chapter 5, verse 15, resolve to pray with and for one another when I am together with others. What a great use of words. For, for our words to turn up toward God as we pour out our hearts in prayer with one another. Uh, here's one more, number seven, from James chapter 5, verse 19. 
When I see a person who's running from Jesus, resolved to speak words of restoration. Think about those who are far from Jesus that you know right now in and around your life. What if you resolve every time I see them, every time I bump into them, I'm gonna speak words of life and restoration into them. So so this week, take the letter of James, read through it and make 10 fresh resolutions regarding your words. And lastly, we're gonna apply it this way. And this is taking in the sweep of the scriptures, the main point of the scripture. I wanna encourage you as we finish to consider the silent love of Jesus. To consider the silent love of Jesus. Here is the Bible's pattern. The Bible sobers us by showing us our sin and our desperate need of grace. And this is what James is doing here. He's holding the mirror of the word in front of us so we can see ourselves clearly. James is saying here, if you want proof that you are inescapably flawed, that proof lies between your teeth. That's James' point here. He's saying that our flawed words reveal our flawed hearts. The Bible sobers us with our sin. But it doesn't leave us there. It sobers us with our sin, but then it satisfies us with the grace of Jesus. In the last few hours of Jesus's life, it's interesting to notice his words or really his lack of words. Isaiah mentions this and really in some ways predicts this. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven, Isaiah says, he talking about Jesus who was to come, he was oppressed And he, Jesus, was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's amazing to look at those last few hours of the life of Jesus. When he's standing before the high priest as the words of false witnesses stacked up against him, Matthew 26 says that, he remained silent as the religious leaders accused Jesus before Pilate, who had Jesus's life in his hands. As they falsely accused him, the scriptures say in Matthew 27 that Jesus gave no answer. Then Jesus was nailed to a cross and there Jesus's silence turns into a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the deafening silence of God the Father came crashing down upon Jesus. Every careless word, every moment of gossip, every lie, Every time you've withheld affirmation, every cutting word of sarcasm, every angry word, every harsh word, every ill-timed word, all of our word problems were piled upon Jesus. And church, it's by keeping our eyes fixed upon the silent love of Jesus that empowers us to speak words of life. It's by staring at and keeping our eyes fixed upon the silent love of Jesus that faith actually begins to work itself out in our words. I'll close by this quote from one of my favorite pastors. He's answering the question, what happened at the cross? What happened there? He says it this way, on the cross, Jesus loved us so much that his sacrifice deleted It deleted the damning record before God of every foolish word you and I have ever spoken. 
He took the divine condemnation for our lies, our insults, our gossip, our put-downs, our bragging, our false promises, our griping, as well as our guilty silence when we should have spoken up. He took it all on himself and hit the delete button. Look at him there upon the cross dying for what you and for what I have said and left unsaid. See him there, trust him, for you are finally free of it all forever. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And let me just encourage you to receive this wound from James. This is really what James is doing. He is is inflicting a wound upon us in these few verses. But it's a wound that is not meant to hurt us, but to help us, to heal us. He's inviting us to look back and to listen to our words. Are they a fountain of life? overflowing and blessing those around us? Or are they a fountain of death, overflowing and bruising and breaking those around us? Where do we need to confess our inconsistencies in our words to Jesus? Where do we need to seek forgiveness from others for our words? And James doesn't just invite us to receive the wound, but to freshly receive the satisfying grace of God. Jesus has paid for every careless word. For for everything that you have said and left unsaid. So receive again today the amazing grace of God. And for some, this is your day to make that decisive decision for Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to tame the tongue. It's him and him alone. And so this is your day. For some, this is your day where you're going to bring your life to Jesus. You're going to offer your life to him and you're going you're to tell God that I am trusting in, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me right with you. And for everyone humble enough to do that, who will bring the empty hands of faith to God today, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God the Father stands with arms wide open, ready to welcome you today. So Father, would you do the work in us that needs to be done? Father, would you change us, not just at the level of our sentences, but all the way down at the source? Would you change us deep down where it matters most in our heart? And God, I pray that that those changed hearts that you are working in us would show themselves in changed words. God, help us to be people who speak life, redemptive life into those around us. Oh God, would you do that? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we pray, amen.